Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If there's one legacy I want to give my children, it's a healthy planet, which is why I'm delighted that this episode is sponsored by Little Freddy, an award-winning baby and toddler food brand who are on a mission to bring flavour and nutrition back to baby food, whilst helping to look after our planet. Their pouches are made for those who want to do their bit for the world without having to compromise on taste or nutrition. As part of their big green plan, they're the first brand in the UK to have launched a new zero-waste-to-landfill recycling scheme, so nothing goes to waste. Little Freddy have made this scheme simple and free for parents, and you can now recycle your pouches and be in with the chance of winning some fantastic prizes, including a year's National Trust family membership over the next 10 weeks through their Pouches for Prizes competition. Visit their website at littlefreddy.com to find out more about how to enter and the prizes that are on offer every week, and message at littlefreddyuk for your free recycling bag. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. I often find myself thinking about what I really want for my children. Is it that they have children themselves or that they get married or get great jobs or achieve financial security? I ponder. And what I realise matters beyond anything else is that they're happy. If my children turn into adults that are broadly happy, I will feel like I've succeeded at the parenthood test. But how do we do this? In fact, what can we do as parents to ensure our beloved children emerge into adulthood happy? With me today is Helen Russell, a journalist and author who spent much of her career studying different cultures and what they do that makes them happy. Helen, thanks so much for being here today. Um, how did your interest in happiness start? It was it was kind of precipitated by a move to Denmark, is that right? It was, yes. So I was living and working for 12 years in London as a journalist um, and had no intention of leaving until out of the blue, one dreary Wednesday, my husband came home and told me he'd been offered his dream job working for Lego in Denmark. And he had loved Lego since he was a little boy. Um, and this hadn't been on the cards at all. I was pretty sceptical to start with. Uh, I knew very little about Denmark, in fact, uh, other than Borgen and the killing and things. But we visited one weekend just to check the place out. And when we arrived, we immediately realised that people were a bit different there. They didn't quite look like us. They looked more relaxed. Um, people stopped work on time to talk together and and just sort of breathe. So we were really impressed. And we thought, well, maybe we should 
changed the way we lived our life now. We'd both been ill on and off for six months. We'd been trying to start a family, having years of fertility treatment, but the doctors kept saying maybe we were too stressed and we were working long hours. So we kind of thought, well, something has to change. And Denmark had just been voted the happiest country in the world in the um, UN World Happiness Poll. So we thought, well, goodness, if we can't get happy in the happiest country in the world, where can we get happy? So I... um, I, I sort of agreed there might have been wine involved and I said we'd give it a year and I would try to investigate this Danish happiness phenomenon firsthand, see what Danes did differently. So I quit my job at marieclaire.co.uk and, and we moved. We shipped all of our belongings across the North Sea in about 130 boxes and yes, I began this challenge of looking at every area of Danish life to see what they did differently. And what you produced a book, or you wrote a book, a, a, book uh, a year of living Danishly, yeah. And w- did you find the secret? Did you find the key to this happiness? <laughs> I nailed it. It's fine. Um, <laughs> Just tell me yeah, in ten fine. words what it is. It. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was really interesting. So I looked at everything from uh, parenting to working to um, diet to the politics there to um, even the approach to art and design. And there are a few things that really stood up, stood out. So things like trust. There's this amazing statistic that 70% of Danes trust most people. Um, So the average person that they meet on the street, they think, yeah, they're probably good. I can probably feel safe around them. And because of the high taxes everyone is looked after. So it costs you a lot, costs a lot to live the Danish way, but it means everyone's looked after. You don't have to worry that your neighbour is going to rob you to put food on their table. So there's this idea that people do have a much better standard of life and that makes that makes you happier. They also work a bit smarter than we do in the UK. They have this amazing term, Arbeidsglul, from Arbeider, the Danish for work, and Glul, the word for happiness. That literally means happiness at work. It isn't found anywhere else in the world, this concept. And it's this idea that you will be happy at work so you make it a priority you take regular breaks you find a job you love you leave on time to spend time with your friends and family Uh, and Danes work some of the shortest hours in Europe but they still get things done they're still really high on the productivity scales so this was really interesting and there are lots of studies from around the world that show that finding a balance between rewarding work and relaxing and, and also rewarding play is really important for happiness so there was that too and then the uh, the idea of hygge which is taken off around the world this incredibly hard to define term but the best explanation I've seen is a complete absence of anything annoying or emotionally overwhelming so it's taking pleasure from the presence of simple soothing things and I think Danes are pretty good at that they're pretty good at living a simple life and so by the end of our year year of living Danishly I kind of felt like I was happier I was living a more relaxed life and halfway through our first year I found out also that I was miraculously pregnant so I joined this parenting club this mad parenting club um and and for me giving birth to a a flame-haired surprisingly since everyone else in our family is blonde this flame-haired little viking baby it really underlined for me how different Denmark was you know they have great child care 75% subsidized by the state at a time when friends back here as I'm sure you find as well are having to give up their jobs because they can't afford child care so it seemed to me that in Denmark they had this really good balance between between a career and family life and leisure time so that was that was my big starting off point 
And in terms of sort of parenting, you, you sort of talked about how childcare is sort of subsidised. In, in terms of um, taking time off to look after your children, the Danes presumably are much more open to taking the, the value of taking time off yes. to be a family. Yeah, they have. I am always a bit reluctant to say it outside of Denmark because people get very envious and a little bit cross sometimes, but they get parents get 52 weeks leave to share between them. Um, and, and it's taken, is it? Because, it's taken, you know, in, yeah. in, in many cultures, it's offered, but it's just frowned upon. I mean, yeah. I, I see so many people that come to the bump class and they say, well, I mean, my husband could take the two weeks off, but there's no way he could really. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's absolutely it's taken. It's certainly taken by the women. Uh, it's pretty common that the that the husband or the, the father rather will take maybe three months off. Um, so my husband took 10 weeks off, fully paid to look after our child. And it's that's really helpful because not only are people working slightly shorter hours, so dads get to do bath time and bedtime rather than just coming home once the child is asleep, but they also learn the beginning bits, like how to bath a newborn and how to change a nappy and how you can feel like you're going insane by 2pm on a Tuesday. So that's really helpful and I think good for relationships too. It's good for the parents to be able to be going through this properly together because they both have an idea of what's going on. And also, I think it's so important. I see this teaching antenatal classes. It's like gaining your confidence and you establish the kind of parent you're going to be in those early days. And the parent that sort of takes a back seat and thinks, oh, I'm not going to change nappies because they're a bit disgusting. Or quite frankly, as I see, and and I was probably guilty of, you know, the woman going, I'll just do it. You'll do it wrong. You know, it's so much more than giving a bath or changing a nappy. It's about engaging with your child it's about becoming a familiar and um uh, and and comforting face in their tiny little world yeah and I think um for so for Danish dads in particular they they do get a good handle on it my very British husband found some of those things challenging because culturally it's not part of what you learn growing up as a man in the UK so when I said well you know, I've done the pureed food enough for the next two days, but then you're going to have to do it. He wasn't massively delighted about that, but he, you know, he eventually had to get his head around it. So there's something about letting go as well. And as you say, not sort of being the martyr and say, well, I'll do it then, it's fine. Of just sort of standing back and letting him fill the, fill the space. So that was interesting as well. And then when typically um, parents, 80% of mothers go back to work in Denmark because there is this great childcare. And typically children are starting daycare before they're a year old because it's really good. It's, it's high quality. Everyone's doing it. You know the children are going to be looked after, have a really nice time. And also develop those social skills that you only get in a group of children. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So if you think, you know, our nuclear families are not what we were designed to be brought up in. There's something really nice about rolling in a gang quite early on and learning, as you say, from a really young age that it's kind of not okay to hit that child with that toy uh, and that you have to do things at certain times I, I love routine so I love the fact that they will all know that you wash your hands and you sit down then you have your food and you know having just done potty training for example they now know when you arrive somewhere new you go to the loo and you, you know I like that that's part of how they know to to behave it's really good uh do you I mean there's a kind of concept that in today's day and age we have more than we've ever had before and yet we are unhappier mm. than we ever were before do you do you agree with that I I it's a really interesting one and I think that we know a lot more and we have the internet and we have globalization so we're aware of a lot more of what's going on you know on paper you're right things have never been so good for for so many of us um, in terms of poverty in terms of um, uh, 
you know, the mortality of, of children and of mothers. Um, but of course, negativity bias means that as human beings, we remember the bad things more 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 keenly and uh, than we do the good. And so we have to kind of make an effort to counter that. It, I mean, it made sense. We're hardwired to do this so that we don't think, we, you know, we need to remember that there's a saber-toothed tiger in that cave or that we shouldn't pick those red berries. But we were never built for social media or for 24-hour rolling news. And if we want to make a change and if we want to make things better for ourselves and for those around us then we do have to remain optimistic I've had Pollyanna accusations thrown at me for some years now but I do believe it's really important I you know that if we we are not going to be open to learning unless we remain optimistic unless we remain hopeful and that's how I started writing the Atlas for Happiness is because after the year of living Danishly people started getting in touch from all over the world, which I found fascinating because I'm nosy and I like to know these things. I'm a journalist, but people would email and say, well, actually, in my country, maybe it's not such a happy country as Denmark, but we still have things that that culturally we do to keep our heads above water. So I think there's a really strong human desire to, to thrive and to make the best of what you've got. So although things are good on paper and although the news is telling us that things are terrible as as human beings we are really driven to to make the best of things and to try to be happy yeah i mean to be honest i think it's easier to be happy you know you don't know what the day is going to bring and if you think it's probably going to be really fun you know we've got a situation where uh in my kids school there's a new headmistress that has started and everyone's really sad to see the old headmistress go because she was wonderful and warm and much 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 loved and there was an uh, there was a sort of idea that she's never going to be as good as the old one and I just remember sitting down with my kids going there's no reason for us not to presume she's going to be amazing she's going to be different but that doesn't mean she's going to be amazing you just can't walk into this term thinking it's not going to be as good yes. you can't walk into a holiday thinking it's probably going to be rubbish and I definitely feel that that optimism is something I want to encourage in my children because if you start every day thinking it's probably going to be rubbish mm. that's so much more exhausting than if you think it's probably I mean it's a bit like the whole trust issue you were talking about before that's just what I was thinking yeah you know as a new parent you think oh god you know a babysitter but I've never had her before and what if what it takes a pretty awful person to really hurt your child most people are good yeah and they might be a bit cheeky but most people are good and I think you kind of do have to trust people but also encourage your children to trust yes. people yeah because presuming everyone's going to be a mass murderer it's not going to achieve anything and we were brought up with I don't know about you but I was brought up with the stranger danger campaign in the mm. UK where we were taught to trust less mm. even as children mm. whereas yeah kids in the UK in, in Denmark are are taught to trust and the trust levels have been rising in the last few years and you do you're right you have this headspace to be happy if you're not anxious all the time and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy you know people are more likely to behave better if you expect uh, good things from them and I guess similarly with with positivity and with happiness it's it's not a it's not a panacea but yes there's no need to go into things assuming that they'll be terrible and similarly with your children you know if yeah. you say to them i'm trusting you to behave much more likely to behave than if you sort of go bet you're going to be naughty <laughs> yes yeah and there's something about um it makes them feel grown up as well doesn't it yeah exactly yeah. well it's an entrusting someone with something is actually a it's a real accolade isn't it yeah to- 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And so with the Atlas of Happiness, which is just the most amazing name for a book, and also a really fantastic concept because I think, you know, learning culturally what is making and has made people happy in different walks of life um for generations is something that we've slightly put on the you know we haven't we've sort of ignored so what did you learn when you started this odyssey around the world of of you know looking examining happiness it was really interesting not not least because it became a project that the whole family sort of got involved in so each country i was working on i would end up trying to cook things from that from that culture and i am no great chef my husband has not forgiven me for russia month um <laughs> But it was really interesting and it's, it was an opportunity to like look with the kids and say, look, this is the, you know, this is, this is Russia. And my five-year-old said, um, is it called Russia? Because people rush about a lot. I said, oh, interesting. Well, it's quite cold. So perhaps, you know, people move quite quickly when it's cold in the winter. But it was, it was really interesting to, to get an understanding of cultures that we don't learn about at school. You know, I went to a pretty typical, probably British school, and you learn a bit of history, and you, but you learn quite specific things about specific countries to, so to get more of an overview and also of the history of, of different countries around the world during my lifetime that I perhaps wouldn't have known about was fascinating. And it, it made the world seem both a bigger place because there were so many places I had yet to discover and also a smaller place because People were just people, no matter where I was speaking to them and where I was traveling to. They were mostly really nice, uh, all bar one. Um, but people were people are generally lovely, as you say. So it, it makes you feel um, pretty proud and pretty humble to, to be part of you know, the human race, that, that there are some great people out there. And no matter what perhaps politicians are doing, people are out there doing their best. Uh, and it was a great opportunity to learn about the different countries. Did you go to any countries where you think, I'm actually not sure they are particularly happy? I mean, being massively stereotypical, Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think of the Russians as really happy, joyful people. Um, And that is a huge stereotype. Mm -hmm. I'm Mm -hmm. holding my hands up now. But, um, I mean, did you go, were you surprised that people, you know, in cultures that you don't necessarily associate with happiness were actually happier than you had anticipated? I think... 
Yes. Yeah, of course, actually. Yes. Yeah, I was. Uh, I think um, Spain's a really interesting one because we think of, uh, you know, Southern Europe as being quite gregarious and, you know, sunshine and great food. But there's also a real love of complaining and there's a real love of moaning, um, which is not it, it's not something that we are immune to in the UK, certainly. But it was interesting to see this and how money was a big fraught topic, but there was almost a pleasure in that in the complaining about it. And there are studies to show that complaining has a bonding effect, that it can make us feel better. Russia, as you say, yes, is not something we, we think of as a, as a jazz hands happy place. But then, you know, Chekhov, Tegenev, they these are sort of people are, that are concerned with deep feeling. So there is this idea, I, I'm rolling up my sleeves as I say this, as so I'm really getting stuck into Russian culture. But it's, it's about passion and it's about... Um, you know, really having deep intellectual conversations. So it's a different kind of of pleasure, but I think it's definitely still a pleasure. It's definitely still some sort of urge and drive. Bhutan interested me. So there's this, the idea of, it's gross national happiness, yeah. is that right? That yes. is sort of measured a bit like GDP. Is yes. there, and, and they take it quite seriously, don't they? Yes, really seriously. So it's been in, in practice throughout Bhutanese history. But in 1972, King Wanchuk IV uh, told a journalist, journalist from the Financial Times uh, that for him, gross national happiness was more important than gross national product. And since then, it's been part of, of how they guide the country. And it's been uh, part of guides all government policy. So every decision taken by government is now measured through the prism of will this make people happier? And also, will it make the environment better? Which I found really interesting because there's a lot of studies to show that people who care about the environment are happier. Um, it's it's good for your sense of well-being. And if we are not happy, we tend to be worse for the environment because we spend more, we consume more to try and bribe ourselves into happiness so yeah Bhutan has has made some really interesting decisions because they didn't have schools or roads or hospitals to the 1960s but they wanted to come into uh, the, the 20th century then they wanted to embrace modernity but not in a way that would harm happiness or harm the environment so they said no to McDonald's um, they said yes to Kit Kats there are still contradictions everyone Kit loves Kit Kats are good. they are good <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> nothing see. like what a are you bit of do? chocolate to make you feel yeah, happy yeah <laughs> exactly but they said uh, they didn't want to join the World Trade Organization because they'd have to open up their forests um, and they now have western style hospitals but they you can also elect to be treated with Bhutanese medicine within these hospitals and kids learn STEM subjects at school so science technology english and math uh, engineering and maths but the teachers wear um, the traditional bhutanese robes so they're really blending old and new and they have a really good handle on the environment so it's still really lush there um, they've pledged that uh, i think it's at least 60 percent of the land will be covered by forests in perpetuity and i think right now it's 70 percent and um it's such a lush environment that the Bengal tigers are working their way to Bhutan because they just want to be in this environment. And they have a very good grip on on the kind of circle of life there as well. So crematoriums are centrally located. So children grow up with an understanding that loss and death are inevitable and that it's just a part of life, which I also find really healthy and something as a parent that I'm always grappling with a, a helpful and, and approachable way to talk about with my kids. So... Yeah, they do a lot of things right there. And does this, you know, does this um, happiness index 
that's obviously something that's um, embraced by the government. Has it filtered down to everyday families? Because I just mm-hmm. thinking, you know, in in my family unit, how what we base our decisions on, and this idea is that if we do this, will it make us happier? is actually something we don't really consider that much. You know, mm. when I think about, you know, shall I take on this? Shall I do this project? I think, well, how much money will it earn me? How much time will it take me? How much will it further my career? Yeah. And then maybe how... No, I never really ask, how happy will it make me? And how happy will it make my family? And actually, to reframe it and to sort of think, well, actually, that's the most important question. And, you know, obviously having more funds means that maybe you can work less in other aspects. So that mm. might well be contributor to, to being happy. But do you think individuals mm. on a sort of micro basis are making decisions based on the happiness index as well as the government? Oh, that's interesting. I think, I couldn't swear for sure that they all are, but I think there is something that if the people who are leading your country and doing it in a way that you generally admire are prioritising happiness then you end up, you know, taking on that idea as well. So the the Bhutanese people I spoke to took it as a given, really, that happiness was something that they would prioritise. Um, people are surveyed every two years there, and, and they are asked about their happiness in all aspects of life, and they report that they are happier. Um, so, you know, I don't know for sure, but I think there is certainly something in there. And if you don't think money is the highest metric but you place happiness at that place instead, it's going to make a difference. And studies have shown, you know, loads of studies have shown that over a certain threshold, money doesn't make us happier. We're better off spending our money on experiences rather than stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting idea that we we could all use perhaps elsewhere as a checklist of... Well, we're also teaching our children. You know, we say money doesn't make you happy, but yeah. then we act in a different way. You know, we're desperately trying to work so that we can be as financially secure as possible. So we're not really modelling that. Yeah. Whereas if uh, you're living in Bhutan and the government is modelling that, so yeah. right, every decision we're going to make with this consideration, you know, it's inevitably going to reflect down into, into the children. Yeah. And, and the, last, um, the last king, actually, he um, gave up his princely palace um, to go and allegedly live in a treehouse and go on a bicycle every day. So they are... They are rather modelling there that this idea that having a humble life that makes you happy is better than any grandeur. <laughs> I wonder if royal families in Europe sort of look longingly at Bhutanese <laughs> going, God, I wish I could have you. I've been queen oh. for 70 years. Yes. I just want to go live in Yes, a do you think she would love that and just go and have a Kit Kat somewhere privately? Exactly. Oh, we could have a lovely time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you feel that your exploration of happiness in different cultures has influenced you as a parent? Oh, that's a great question. Let me think. Um, So I didn't grow up terribly sporty. And by terribly, I mean at all. Um, I was not good at that. And I couldn't really see the value. And I felt, well, if I'm not naturally good at it, why bother? But actually researching Australia that often often does very well in the happiness polls um, and speaking to lots of Australians sport is very important in Australia but it's not really about how good you are at it it's about taking part so the Australian concept I investigated is is this idea of fair go that everyone gets a fair go of course some people historically have not had a fair go in Australia but in general the the direction that most people are are hoping to to strive towards is this idea of fair go and sport is the ultimate in that because 
as long as you're not standing at the edge of the rugby pitch with your arms folded, as long as you're trying to take part, as long as you're a member of a team, then you are giving something a fair go. And that reframed sport for me in a way that I found really helpful uh, as something to encourage in my children that doesn't, you know, of course, it doesn't matter if you're not good at it. You just, it's good to try. It's good to learn. It's good to feel a part of something. Um, I think in Greece, they have this great concept of meraki, which is the idea of doing something with passion, a labor of love. So it could be often something creative like painting or cooking. And uh, a lot of Greeks find this really helpful when they are living in troubled times and they don't perhaps have much control over their life economically uh, or politically. But there's this idea that you can have a side hustle, you can have a passion project that brings you a lot of joy. And it doesn't matter how bad your day job is or how bad things are in the country. You have this passion that that you know is always there for you. It's purely for pleasure. And I think that's really helpful in terms of encouraging hobbies and it sort of makes it more grand because it has a name so rather than just hobbies it's like well you're practicing your meraki now this is what you're doing um so that could be lego that could, could be, be I mean, lego. Yeah. you're right i feel whenever i do something that's not working i feel a guilt do you, you know and i actually recently um started doing a tapestry <laughs> my, my husband's like i feel like i'm coming home to jane austen <laughs> but you know what it's something it's really nice to do something with your hands yes yeah and it gives you the opportunity to reflect i mean i've never been very good at meditating but actually that sort of time to turn off i think is really important it's also yeah. really important for our children that are sort of you know they're kind of battered by information and yeah. challenges which on the one hand is great it presents opportunity but their minds are growing and the world yeah. is you know, every day they open their eyes and they look around and they are so amazed by what they see because it's so much newer for them than yes. it is for us yeah um but the idea that it's okay to do something that isn't you know productive yes. particularly I mean I know sewing is a little bit productive but you know not that productive because it's taken me a very very long time <laughs> but you know I, I kind of feel that unless I'm working I should be cooking or cleaning or bettering somehow yeah and actually that time out that time to do something that is just for you is is so yeah. important we know don't I think, we? And, and we are I'm certainly as a parent trying to uh, encourage the idea at the moment that it's okay to do something that's just for fun even if you're not good at it so there's there's lots of things that I'm not good at that I typically have also not done but I am now having to be very conscious of doing them and doing them visibly because it's really important for for my children not to see grown-ups doing things and thinking well I can't do that therefore I won't try so yeah it's it's a really lovely idea of doing something just for the heck of it yeah so that's really good and in in the US as well hominess this idea of this big craft resurgence is again to do with doing something with your hands it's a bit meditative because it takes you away from the busy outside world um and it connects you with your past in a way if it's something like tapestry or or knitting or crocheting it's it's doing something that people will have done hundreds of years ago and you're just doing it and you haven't got screens around you there's no modern technology involved you're just doing so there's something really special about that I think it's quite empowering to make something I find that with my children you know they're so proud of something they've made mm. by themselves and that sort of feeling of achievement is I think probably really good for their selves yes yeah. yeah yeah and I think um whilst whilst wanting to encourage this idea that it that it's it's not about achieving and, and success and goals the idea that when you've done something you feel good about it is something that I also try and try and teach and show and so um having not been any good at exercise or or sports forever I discovered paddleboarding after I had twins which was a a useful way I was going to have to have an operation to rebuild my 
frankly destroyed body from twins um and then paddleboarding sort of helped knit things back together a bit and it was really nice because my kids sort of saw me going to do this and they saw me fall in and they saw me looking a bit of a fool um and I was researching the, this Norwegian concept of free love to live or free air life at the time which is this idea that no matter what the weather's like no matter what the conditions you get outside and you do something with your body you earn your lunch and so that's become a big one for my family we I mean, it will be blowing a hoolie, but we will be outside in our wet weather gear and just trudging along the beach or just trying to do something so that we feel like we've been outside and got the fresh air in our lungs. So that's another useful one for us. We do quite a lot of walking with the children. I love it um, because also it gives us the opportunity to talk. But I do get them out in all weathers. And I was talking to them about, you know, we were somewhere where we'd been and they said, oh, this was where we did the get as wet as we possibly can walk. And it was pouring with rain. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to embrace the wetness. And we jumped and leapt in every puddle. They actually ended up rolling in the puddles because I turned it into a competition of who can get the wettest. And, you know, we've had so many gorgeous walks with beautiful weather and you know the ones that are instagrammable and yet this was the walk that they remembered and actually I do think sometimes forcing yourself out getting cold and wet is so much more rewarding when the conditions are slightly adverse yes and then there is something so lovely about when that that sort of tingly feeling when you get back inside in the warmth and yeah so that was really nice yeah and I think from, from Scandinavia in general there there's a sort of resilience to many of the happiness concepts in Scandinavia and they have had you know pretty terrible weather so you, everything has to be really to do with surviving that in Iceland they have tatarados this idea it'll all work out okay this kind of real viking spirit so speaking to Scandinavian friends and really getting an idea of the different concepts around the different Nordic countries uh, tatarados from Iceland is a really interesting one it basically means it'll work out all right and it summarizes that kind of viking spirit and Spending time in Reykjavik and speaking to Icelandic friends, little tiny children are made to walk, say, five kilometres. There is no um, you know, reduction in the amount that you expect of, of a child just because they're little. And there's this idea that the weather is so bad, they even get a, a day off work if it's a, a, an Icelandic heat wave above 18 degrees Celsius, solar free. <laughs> Was that so they can enjoy it? Yes, exactly, so they can get some daylight. So they, they really sort of get out there no matter what the weather and then when things are really too bad and it's really just too dangerous to be outside when the landscape and climate is so inhospitable they come inside and cultivate a really strong interior life um, with a real emphasis on reading and books which I find really helpful as well and the Swedes have a similar holding up idea when things are too tough outside they have this thing called Smultronstella or symbolic strawberry patch which is every this idea that every Swede will have somewhere place that they go that they feel they can just breathe and it's often away from other people maybe other people don't even know it exists but you just have this space to take two five minutes to just calm down and it's I find it really useful as a parent so I will go and just take take two minutes people think I'm putting away laundry for a very long time but just to come back a calmer nicer parent and it's been really helpful with children as well because you know the ideas of like the naughty step of uh, feel rather dated now but certainly there's there's something about taking a child somewhere else so that you're with them to still be supporting them but putting them in a different situation that they associate with being calm to just have a think about things and take stock so I find that really helpful. It is interesting that the Nordic countries where life is probably harder than anywhere else in the world are 
frequently conceived perceived as the most happy happiest you know where you know close to the arctic circle you don't get much daylight you get harsh winters your summers are sort of a bit tepid and yet they consistently rate sort of highest on scale i mean i wonder if it's a sort of evolution survival of the most optimistic and able to really rejoice in not necessarily the easiest conditions it has you know that that's maybe what characterizes the the Scandinavians yeah there's definitely something about the old idea that you wouldn't have got through a Scandinavian winter historically without help from your neighbors so today uh even though there is there are supermarkets and there's central heating there's still this idea of togetherness so it may not be gathering firewood or, or sharing food together but there's there's something sort of communal there's lots of debates about whether the the uh, Danish happiness and trust came before the Danish welfare state or the, whether the Danish welfare state produced the trust and happiness. And there are compelling arguments on both sides. But the the happiness and this idea of unity has been around for a long time now. So there's definitely something in it, the way that they do things out there. Mm. It's really interesting. Um, I'm going to ask you a question you might not know the answer to, but what I see is very much, you know, parents wanting their children to be happy. Um, and what often makes children really unhappy is the education system because it puts a lot of pressure on children, mm. especially the English education system where the British education system where, you know, children start school probably earlier than anywhere else in the world. Yeah. You know, I was, I was in Austria over the summer and I was talking to a German friend of mine who says, you know, they don't start school in, in Germany till they're eight and they don't really have exams till they're 16, 17. And yet you look at Germans as a sort of people and, and they haven't done too badly in terms of <laughs> what they've achieved. Uh, do, did, you, did you notice any differences in the education system and did you make any correlations between how they were and how happy children were? Yes, is the short answer. Yes, definitely. And and I agree. So raising children in Denmark, in, in many respects, I worry that they will not be perhaps as academically advanced as they might have been had they been raised in the UK. But certainly throughout Scandinavia, there's this idea that you don't start children on school and, and things so early. So children don't start school till they're six in in Denmark in Finland I think it's seven and Finland is consistently ranked as having the best education system in the world um so there's a much more of an emphasis on play which has been proven to make people happier adults as well by the way you know we all need to be playing a little bit more um and yeah taking that pressure off and teaching as we chatted about earlier teaching these social skills before you worry about numbers and letters and I find it really hard because I grew up in Thatcher's Britain in the 80s. You know, achievement and success were really important and I learned to read really young. But I can see, or at least I'm really trying hard to, that it's much more important for them to be nice people who trust the world around them than it is for them to be able to spell precocious age five. So there's something in that. And Finland in particular, I find fascinating because Finland, as we know it today, it's only been an independent country for 100 years. Um... Finland was set up by academics so it was all university professors so they had a real interest and and, uh, knowledge of education when they set up the way Finland runs today largely and and it's it's paid great dividends so I think it's Finland and um, Korea that always do really well on education and it's really different approaches as you might expect but the Finnish way that all children get there in the end uh, they they play to their skills but there's a lot of free play first and because of the climate because it's so dark so early school days are short kids go home um they often walk home by themselves despite it being pretty dark outside so there is yeah there's this idea that play 
is learning and it's more important perhaps than book learning. So yeah, I do think that makes a big difference. You, I mean, you obviously became a mother when you were living in Denmark. Um, Do you think you are a different mother to the mother you would have been had you had your children in England? Ooh, yes, almost certainly. I think I had very strict Mary Poppins ideas about how I wanted to be a parent. Firstly, because I I never expected such joy and fulfillment from children because I didn't know if I'd have any, or from my career, in fact. But uh, so I, I... And I think maybe in common with many women who are thinking about having children or who are who have just had a child, I didn't really think much past the baby stage. I wanted a baby so much. From the age of about 26, I had this real biological urge that every atom in my body wanted a baby. And I don't think I thought, in all honesty, what happened next. Which might have been foolish. Um, but I think it's not how I imagined it at all. And I think I... I was a very obedient child. I was an only child to a single mum. And so it was me and my mum. It was a very cool and calm house. It was very female. Um, it was Maggie Thatcher. It was the queen. It was me and my mum. I went to an all-girls school. It was very female and calm. And parenting the way I am doing it now with a husband and two sons and a daughter is is very chaotic and it's very loud. And for a while, I struggled with that. I was almost... I was almost envious of my five-year-old's freedom that he was able to behave as crazily as he liked. And we still loved him and we still, you know, he still got all of the benefits of of living in this big family. And I've had to kind of work quite hard to see that chaos is okay and that shouting is okay. And sometimes people will get angry with each other. He told a friend the other day, um, he said, my mommy never gets angry. And I did not take that as a compliment because I don't think that's super helpful, especially as a woman to show that women don't get angry. Um, In Denmark, they have this great term, ramashang, which the closest British translation is hullabaloo. But they use it to mean just getting really messy and having really chaotic play. So like you're rolling in the puddles. It's like, right, it's time for ramashang. And I've had to get really a lot better at that. It's like, right, everyone's going to make a mess now. It's going to be loud. And then I'll go to my small tonstella and it'll be fine and I'll recover. But um, yeah, I've had to get used to the Scandinavian way. And do you think since researching this and understanding a little bit more about how different cultures deal with happiness, that you're a happier person? I think I, I would certainly have said so a few years ago, but I've been on a bit of a journey and finding out a little bit more about really the importance of embracing all of our emotions, positive and negative. So I'm certainly happier. Uh, um, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for, we, we can all get happier by learning how to be sad better as well. So one of the concepts that really sparked off a whole new area of research for me from the Atlas of Happiness was Sodaji, this Brazilian concept of um it's almost the absence of happiness or a nostalgia for happiness or a melancholy for happiness that once was. And I found this really interesting, the idea that in Brazil and in Portugal, they don't shy away from these feelings of regret and these these what-if thoughts and from just feeling all the feels and having those emotions. And I think in the UK and the US, certainly, there's a real propensity to, to drive towards jazz hands happy all the time. 
often with ignoring the less sunny side of life. And so the Atlas of Happiness is, is used in a lot of schools in the UK, I've discovered, to to help teach in well-being classes, which is wonderful and I'm flattered and honoured. But I worry from what I hear that people are also perhaps not getting the help to learn how to embrace and accept and to handle their negative emotions as well. So, so a long-winded answer to your question. But I think... Um, it's helped me to be happier, but it's also helped me to be sadder too, if that makes sense. Helped is me this, to I think more. this is like the next book. It is. The, it is, is it? Mm-hmm. It is. Atlas yes. of Sadness. Well, it's being announced next March. Yes. It's happening. It's, under, it's underway. <laughs> that is a great idea. Well, thank you so much. I have so enjoyed. I've, I definitely feel sort of uplifted. And um, I love your book. Um, I love The Atlas of Happiness. Um, so it's the year of living Danishly and The Atlas of Happiness so far that people can read but watch this space for something even more thoughtful (laughs) thank you so much helen and thank you all for downloading another episode of the parenthood please don't forget to subscribe rate and review us it only takes a minute but it really helps other people find us and gets us new listeners you can also follow me on instagram i'm at marina.fogel but in the meantime from helen me thanks for listening and goodbye When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.